Ebenezer Scrooge. Most of us have met this character in Charles Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol. Dickens describes this man as a London-based moneylender, a miserly tyrant, utterly devoid of compassion. He also describes him, full of the Dickens, as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Scrooge is surrounded by the poor and the oppressed, but he is a man in love with money, not with people. And so he uses his power to oppress the poor so that he retains his place in society and he makes sure that they stay in their place. The downtrodden of London are the objects of Scrooge's scorn. And it seems, as the story begins, that nothing will change this. Well, change, of course, comes. On Christmas Eve, Scrooge receives four visitors from the supernatural realm. There's the ghost of his former partner that visits him. And then three spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. They combine to liberate Scrooge's perspective and to soften his money-hardened heart. The wealth that Scrooge employed to shackle the poor in chains of poverty also shackled his own heart. He didn't see it. The liberation required a supernatural intervention. So we pull away from that story and it just gives us some sense of where we are today. Friends, God has placed us on a verdant planet. It teems with rich resources. It teems with satisfying pleasures. But tapping that wealth requires diligent effort. Sometimes, let's say it, in competition with others, at least to some degree. It also requires some providential breaks along the way. Breaks we cannot create on our own. And in such a world, wealth can become an idol that enslaves us and a powerful tool by which we enslave others. Wealth can become an idol that enslaves us and a powerful tool by which we enslave others. And in a very different way, but in an analogous way, the answer is not to look within, as was the case with old Scrooge. It's not tapping even the powers of guilt, or perhaps one could argue with him the powers of pride, as he sees things differently and now perceives himself to be the liberator because of his own strength. But the answer is to look up to our Creator. To view all material wealth in light of His sovereign Lordship. Treating others in active response to Christ's saving grace in our lives. This is the orientation to which He calls us. This is our calling as we commune on a daily basis with our Savior and live in dependence upon Him in the midst of the idolatries of wealth. Resisting them and living for Him alone. 
This is our calling. And we're encouraged by the drama of Leviticus 25, if you'll make your way there, which steers us to this end by displaying rituals of sacred time that God establishes in His covenant with Israel. And undoubtedly, we're a long ways past the application, the specific application of these rituals to our daily life, to our our annual celebrations of Sabbath. We're certainly past that in God's plan. But Leviticus 25 teaches Israel God's beautiful rule over every aspect of their lives, including their relationship with material wealth. As we come to Leviticus 25, it's important to ask, where is Israel? It's important to ask, in fact, who Israel is right now. Where are they? They're at the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert. Who are they? They are a nation of freed slaves, soon to become farmers of the fertile land of Canaan. They probably had some gardens in Egypt, but that's not been their occupation. They had been serving Pharaoh for hundreds of years in his building projects and bringing cities together and eking out a living there in Egypt. They have not had fertile fields. They, aren't, they haven't been farmers, and they really don't know what it's going to mean to become farmers in a verdant land. But they, liberated by God, are about to inherit Canaan. They're about to inherit this promised land from the Lord, and it will be one that they farm, where they raise crops, God's law is given to them now. They can't write at this point. They don't even really have ways of conceiving what this will mean for them. But as they come to this land, He gives them laws. This tremendous blessing of the land will come with extreme danger. It will come with, the, with danger because the land will create wealth that Israel has never had to manage before. God's law then is designed to help Israel live holy lives as they begin to enjoy the rewards of this land. And all of us can find parallels there with our lives. There's a stretch of life where we have no wealth. At least nobody in this church. We don't come to it by simply inheritance, but Many of us walk for a period of time with really no wealth, but then it begins to accumulate. And through diligence and through the blessing of God, we begin to put it together. And in a sense, then, we're where Israel is here. They've not had wealth, but they're about to enter into it. They'll have to work for it. It will take time. But what are they going to do with it? How are they going to look at it? Will it become idolatrous? Will they be shackled by their love for wealth? And will they use it to harm others? These are live questions. And God in His mercy and His kindness to them lays out some laws that will guide them and remind them that He is the author of life, the giver of every good gift, and that they will use their wealth as God intends. He begins with the Sabbath year in 25 of Leviticus, verse 1. 
The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Under the covenant established at Mount Sinai here, God's people were to worship the Lord by observing a Sabbath rest every seventh day of the week. On that rotation, setting work aside to worship God, to rest, to refresh in His presence and with His people. But even, we find here, even the land is to recognize, observe a Sabbath. What on earth does that mean? How does land Take a Sabbath. Well, here it is. Verse 3. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest, or gather the grapes of your undressed vine, it shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. So this ritual would serve to weave a Sabbath principle into the fabric of Israel's identity. It's there every week, every seventh day. But now it's here as well every seventh year. They face it again. Every season of planting and harvesting, every agricultural plan these new farmers would devise would be influenced by the knowledge that year seven is coming. The year in which we will not sow our fields. This Sabbath provided a refreshing change of pace for workers, undoubtedly. could almost be jealous, couldn't we? I mean, they're going to keep working. There's things that have to keep going on. They have to make a living and continue to feed themselves. But not this arduous task of planting and reaping and storing. It was also a break for the soil, allowing nutrients to be rejuvenated in a day before the benefits of crop rotation were known. But above all, the sabbatical year encouraged Israel to recognize that God reigned sovereignly over their ability to gain wealth. The land was a gift from Him. Its produce was a gift from Him. And setting aside this year reminded them that it all came from the Lord. Verse 5, you might have, a question mark might have popped into your head there. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest. If that's not confusing now, it would becomes confusing. Uh, as we work through the text. But just to say right up here at front, the emphasis here falls on the reap. That is, they could eat what grew up on its own. Uh, We used to call that the volunteer crop, at least in the farms where I worked, and it provided me with some employment back when I had no money. That is, you'd work a bean field, and from the year before, there was a corn field there, and so corn came up on its own. And you got to pull the corn and Make a little bit of money doing it. That's going to happen. As you sow a field and then leave it alone, perhaps even more will come up because the field just left there and there will be seed from the year before that has fallen into the ground and that will come up and they could, they could eat from that which came up naturally on its own. But they're not to reap, that is to harvest, to store and to do that work. They're to leave the ground alone. Verse 6, The Sabbath of the land 
shall provide food for you. There it is, the Sabbath of the land. The idea is, how how does the Sabbath provide food? Again, it's this volunteer crop. It's this naturally uh, developing crop that comes without sowing that year, coming from the year before. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So the picture that we should get here is landowners and laborers and slaves and even animals domesticated and wild are free to move about the country and to take whatever's growing up. To to harvest it in that sense, in that narrow sense of the word, and to eat what is provided that way. Victor Hamilton wisely notes here that this is not God's plan to starve His people. But rather, it is, in a sense, a return to the Garden of Eden. The year when there was no work, no particular toil necessary to eat, but all moved about God's creation and ate what was there provided without that toil. It wasn't the Garden of Eden, not anywhere close, but it was a a reminder of it, a return to it, in a sense, And even prophetically so. It demanded certainly trust in God. And sadly, Israel did not obey this command. They didn't follow this very well at all. Remember when they go into Babylonian captivity, one of the reasons is that the land will have its Sabbaths. They apparently had stopped doing this. But think about how this worked in your life as a farmer. You know this year is coming, and it's a really unique year in which anybody's free to go pretty much anywhere and just satisfy their hunger for that day, for that meal, wherever their journey took them. That's the Sabbath year, every seventh year. Now, we come to yet another unique observance. That's in verse 8, the Jubilee year. Verse 8, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So again, the Sabbath is woven into the fabric of Israel's identity in this additional way. Every seven days, a Sabbath day. Every seven years, a Sabbath year. Every seventh grouping of seven years, a Sabbath year. Now there's different ways of calculating this. Some saying that it's actually the year 49. So it's 50 inclusive. That's what is indicated here at 50 is 49, year 49, so 50 years inclusive. Others would take it as a 50th year, that actual the 50th year. And then others would take it as a shortened fictional year of a shorter period of time. Part, mainly the concern is how do you go this long without planting? How did Israel make it that long without planting? We're not going to go into the debate as to which it is. It's fairly irrelevant to us on this point. If you want to chase that, you can chase it forever and ever. Amen. 
It's amazing all that's written about exactly how it is and how you work it out. The simple principle is clear to us. This is weird economics. There's something really unusual going on here. God is revealing His character to Israel as He lays out this very unique stipulation. And there's beauty to this observance. It might clearly, might, might easily miss us. But the Jubilee is announced when? It's announced on the Day of Atonement. So this most holy day in Israel, when Israel's sin is dealt with in a unique sense, that whole ritual of cleansing the tabernacle and that goat being sent off eastward with the sins of Israel ritually, symbolically. And on this somber day, when Israel does not even eat, in order to recognize the significance of her sin, on that day, as that day ends, a a ram's horn is sounded with loud announcement that jubilee has has begun. The sin is atoned, and now release and redemption has come. A, A year of freedom and release of jubilee. Jubilee is an anglicized transliteration of the Hebrew word yobel, meaning ram or sometimes ram's horn. So it means something like, jubilee means something like, roughly, the year announced by the blowing of the ram's horn. That ram's horn is blown on the Day of Atonement and announces this liberation throughout the land. Verse 11, That fiftieth year shall be jubilee for you, In it you shall neither sow nor reap what sounds of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee, it shall be be holy to you, you may eat the produce of the field. So again, you're able to take for a meal what is out there, but once again, you will not sow and reap on this year. There's much more to it to follow. Verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. What's going on here? Remember, land in this promised land is a gift to Israel, given by God. Each tribe was granted an inheritance, and every 50 years the land reverted then to the original owner. In a sense, saying, God is the giver of this land, And we are merely its stewards. In a sense, everyone who purchased land then was actually leasing it for the number of harvests remaining until the next Jubilee. They weren't actually possessing it. In some sense, they were just leasing it. Again, keep thinking through this. We're going through some of the detail of it, but it's revealing who God is. It's helping Israel think a certain way about wealth. Verse 14. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You're going to get your crops out of this field. There's a certain price on that. Everybody knows what that price is. 
pay a fair price. And, and, and it makes sense, doesn't it? If it's ten years between now and Jubilee, it's going to cost less than if there's 30 years between this purchase and Jubilee, or this literally or technically lease. So you work out a fair price. You don't look to oppress someone who's in trouble and has to sell their land to you for this period of time in order to harm them. But working together fairly, there are some, for one reason or another, who will need to sell their land, to lease their land. Don't take advantage. Be fair about it. Be thoughtful about it. This means then that approximately once in a lifetime there was a major reboot, a fresh start for everyone. Those who had become impoverished, and over a 50-year period you can become very impoverished. But for those individuals there was now a new start. It wasn't poverty forever passed on from generation to generation. There was a chance to rethink, to be liberated from what had taken place in the past. And for the wealthy, there was a check on their ambitions and a reminder that the land belonged to God. You were always in leasing mode. You were never in permanent accumulation mode. God just didn't let His people go there. Verse 18, Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and when you will dwell, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. What's, why, what, what's the point of this? God reassures Israel that this is going to work. I mean, wouldn't that be your first question? That's my livelihood, that's how I eat, and I'm not going to do anything this year that way. Is this actually going to work? God assures them here, yes, this is a risky plan on some level, but if you keep my rules, you will dwell in the land securely. There is His promise. Verse 18 and verse 19, the land will yield its fruit. You will eat your fill. You will dwell in it securely. I promise you, I give you this word. You are not reliant only on yourself. Your own ingenuity. I'll guide you there. I'll protect you there. Okay? But what are we going to eat in the years that we don't plant? Again, a natural question. Verse 20. If you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So clearly in that year, the final year of sowing, that'll be there. The next year you do nothing, you'll have enough stored up and enough will come up on its own. You'll be fine. And then that next year, as you wait for the new crop to actually come up and mature, I have your back. You bless me in this way. You honor me in this way. This unique way. Every 50 years. I will take care of you. Trust me in this. 
And you could, you could hear them gulping, you know, especially as they read this text once they're in the land. We're going to trust you that far in that way? Do not be anxious about food. God is teaching them. Don't be anxious about food. As Jesus said to us, trust me. God is so amazing. You have to be thrilled with this. He's taking his people and saying, I want you to think differently than everybody around you. And I want you to take some risk that no one else is willing to take by trusting me. Have you ever been in that spot? Has God ever put you in that spot? He willingly puts his people in a place where they have to trust him to provide. Have you ever been there? And if you've ever been in that spot, have you ever found God to fail you? Do not such times make life interesting and exciting? Aren't those the times we tell stories about? You remember when? You remember this? You remember what God did? You remember how hard that was? These are the stories of our life that we look to and see a mighty God. Not moments where our souls shrivel and get bitter and wonder why God did not love us. In fact, as we learn to walk with God, we don't run away from such situations. We even choose them in obedience to Him and for His glory, not foolishly, but wisely. In some parallel way, I think there is a a connector of just the journey that we've been through as a church over the last seven years financially. And this last three-year giving campaign we've called Ministry Advance 2016. One of the joys of that discipline has been for me, and I know for many of us as we've talked together, the joy of that discipline has been this, to say, this is our commitment to carry into this project and to press forward for the cause of Christ. This is our commitment, and we have no idea how that's going to work. Now, you can be foolish in that. Never is God commending foolishness, but if you never put yourself in that spot where you go, I'm going to trust God to help me do this, and I don't know how He's going to do it. You're not living life. That's boring. It's, it's a wonder to put ourselves in a spot and just say, all right, Lord, I trust you. Help me. How will you bring this about? And so many of us have had that experience here as we, bring, as we brought that to close here this last year. We look forward, in fact, on February 26th to ha- perhaps hear a few accounts of what God has done so uniquely. Now, I know our setting is different and their setting is different, but what we're looking at is a God who says to His people, I want you to do this. I want you to put yourself in a spot where you must trust Me. And I will provide. Again, we need to be thoughtful of how we do that. We should probably, if we're thinking of something really unique, talk to other believers to work through it and to make sure that it's wise and good. But I would challenge you, 
put yourself in a spot where you say, I've got to trust God. Think about how to get there. So in this jubilee then, there was a return to all ancestral lands, verse 10. This led to a number of issues when it came to the ancestral land and how it was to be dealt with. We'll work through this fairly quickly, but notice the redemption of uh, poverty. The land shall, we're at verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. God puts everything in perspective here. The land belongs to Him, so they must think about it and use it for His glory. Practically speaking, this means, verse 24, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. What does that mean? If your brother becomes poor, verse 25, and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Families help one another by purchasing back land that their relative had to sell. Now further, verse 26, if a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. Everything is driven by this jubilee. So the land should remain with you, if at all possible. That's going to be most profitable for you. But if you need to sell it, you can buy it back. And there was to be a responsiveness to that on the part of the person who wasn't really, in fact, owning it ultimately, but leasing it. And so there was to be a a, a connection there and a response to return the land. Verse 26, if a man has no one, however, to redeem it, he becomes prosperous, finds the means to redeem it, he can calculate and redeem it. But verse 28, if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So there's a redemption way back to it and there's Jubilee. One or the other you continue to work to get the land back. So the Jubilee year, every 50 years, is a safety net, assuring that the property God bequeathed to each clan returned to them. This law assured that the wealthy could not continue to leverage their power to oppress the poor and that the poor could break the cycle of poverty at least once in a lifetime. It was God's mercy to them. This is a beautiful law. It reveals God's wisdom, His mercy to the weak, His hatred of idolatry with the rich. We've got nothing to parallel it in our culture. Nor could we put this into practice. It would be impossible. Now, houses built inside walled cities were handled a bit differently out of necessity. Verse 29, if a man sells a dwelling house, sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong to in perpetuity to the buyer. 
throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. That is, walled cities are tiny by today's standards, and the homes were packed together, so the land they occupied was almost insignificant. The investment was in the house, and often it was the city wall that was really the value, not the house itself. So in that situation, it makes sense for the sale to be in perpetuity. But you notice there that there's even a year in which it can be redeemed. That is bought back. Verse 31, But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. So it all went with the land. The Levites were exempted from this rule. God did not give a territory to the land of the tribe of Levi. And so, verse 32, as for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. It makes sense. So you got one year window on a normal house in a, in a walled city. But the Levites, that's their only inheritance. Forty-eight cities and the field surrounding those cities, God has given to the Levites. They then can redeem at any time. Verse 33, and if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in Jubilee for the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. The very confusing verse. But simply said, it belongs to the Levites. We got that. How this works out precisely is a little murky. But the fields, verse 34, of pasture land belonging to the cities may not be sold for that is their possession forever. Now, most people worked day by day simply to eat. Life was very hard. If anything went wrong, if you got an injury, if there was a death in the family, if there was an illness that compromised your ability to work, a family could get into trouble very quickly. And when that happened, you might need to borrow money in order to live, not so much borrowing money to buy a meal, but perhaps to buy seed to sow your field. In varying other ways, one could get into financial trouble quite quickly. In such situations, God commanded His people to relate graciously to such people because in the culture of that day, what you did was sell yourself to, the, to your creditor. So you couldn't pay them back, but you could work that off an interesting point we get chased for a long time but relating then to the poor is of concern to the lord verse 35 if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you that might mean don't treat him in a bad way because he's a relative who shamed you treat him like you'd care for someone who's a sojourner verse 36 take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and gave you the land of Canaan to be your God. Don't take advantage of him in this spot. He's in a bad place and you can misuse him. Don't despise him because he's perhaps brought shame to your family in some way. Don't take advantage of him. By charging him interest, charging interest to an impoverished family member is forbidden. I don't believe charging interest is forbidden in every case, but when you have someone who's down and out, 
they are your brother, an Israelite, you're not permitted to do that. It's kicking them when they're down. It's keeping them in the cycle. You need to give them a break. Verse 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you should not make him serve as a slave, as you would a slave. Again, selling yourself to someone in order to sell, selling yourself to someone in order to pay off a debt was a common practice. When that happened to an Israelite, God forbid treating that person as a slave. So verse 40, he shall be with you rather as a hired worker, as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. For you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As the land belonged to God, so did the people. Isn't it interesting thinking, since God redeemed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, they should never be enslaved again by anyone. And certainly not by you. I set you free. You're people of freedom, not slaves. So somebody's going to get in that spot. They're going to sell themselves to you. Don't take advantage of them and don't treat them like a slave. And don't think in terms of our nation's history when you hear the word slave. That doesn't mean you're free to do what you want with them. But it means that you recognize their status as a child of God and you treat them accordingly. Verse 44, As for your male and female slaves whom you have, whom you, have you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you and you may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who, who have been born in your land and they may be your property you may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly because God set them free. They're your brothers. They're to be understood, to be treated differently. Now we need to recognize, just briefly, this will be helpful. In fact, as you read the Bible, are you not troubled when you read about slavery? Of course we are, and of course, in God's purposes, we're beyond that, thankfully. But let's remember in the context of that day how important this is to drop everything into its context and see it there, not scrutinize it under our context. In the context of that day, slavery was part of the fabric of life. It was utterly essential as far as people could perceive it in those days. But being a slave in Israel was about the best possible scenario that there has ever been on earth when it comes to slavery. According to passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy, slaves were given an opportunity to buy their freedom. They could purchase their freedom. They could be liberated after a period of time. And many chose to serve their owners for life. They chose to. They made that decision. Further, slaves who ran away, this is a beautiful law in God's plan in the context of time, slaves who ran away were not to be returned to their masters. Well, what does that do for you as a master of a slave who knows if this slave gets away and runs away, they don't ever have to come back. No one is obligated to bring them back. In fact, they're not supposed to bring them back. 
it meant you treated your slave in such a way that he or she would stay. And the difference between slavery under those conditions and employer, employees today was really very slight. There were differences. God always commends freedom from slavery in this legislation. But as he lays out the law, he cares about slaves. It's quite clear. No Israelite, however, was ever to be enslaved because of what God had done to liberate them. Now, 47 to 55, take a deep breath, endure a little further. We've got all of this. There's nothing really added additionally, just a different scenario. So I'll just read it and just a couple of comments. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. That is, you're in the land, a non-Israelite takes in the slave who's an Israelite because they've run into economic trouble. At anywhere along the line, you can choose to redeem that person. Middle of verse 48, one of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He grows rich as a slave. Read that, get that. He grows rich as a slave. That's possible. That's the slavery of that setting. It's very much like employment today. 50, and if this happens, he shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years left before the Jubilee comes. The time he was with his owner shall be rated at the time of a hired, at the, at the, as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left till the Jubilee, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to the years of service. Makes sense. Verse 53, he shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. Don't let it happen. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I bought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And I am a liberator. So my slaves that I've purchased are free. And you're to relate to them that way. Some thoughts, some meditations. And I, am, I feel overwhelmed with how much is here, how much we learn about our God, His character, who He is, and how it relates to us in a world as we deal with material wealth. But let's come back to where we began. Wealth can become an idol that enslaves us and a powerful tool by which we enslave others. If you don't grasp that today, I don't know this has been of any value. Take this home. Let this seep into your soul. Wealth can become an idol. And wealth can become a means of controlling and manipulating and harming others. Particularly the more wealth that you have and particularly the more people that you employ 
wealth can be used to harm. What we learn from our God in Leviticus 25, where it steers us, how it guides us to think as we think of the character and the nature of our God behind these laws, is first that God opposes materialistic ambition. He is opposed to materialistic ambition. He opposes people who amass money by exploiting the poor. He opposes the use of money and position to keep the poor in their poverty. God does not smile on the obsession of a clan or a family to accumulate immense wealth and then to exist to protect that wealth generation after generation. Handing it down from one to the next and saying, this is our name. This is our money. This is our power. Look at what we've built. God does not smile on that. He's opposed to it. Since God's law reveals His holy nature, we can conclude that He is more compassionate and communal than that. On that point, we also see, if I can use that word, that God opposes communalism. That's not where He's coming from. Leviticus 25 assumes the legitimacy of accumulating personal wealth. It commends industry. It assumes that some will combine financial skill and providential blessing sufficient to purchase the property of others and to employ people in financial trouble potentially for 50 years. There is nothing in the legislation that says don't let that happen. It's not communalism. There's no sense of forced redistribution of wealth in God's economic plan. It's not a redistribution of wealth. It's a return and a reboot occasionally. There are rules by which all are invited to compete on some level and thus to labor for their own profit under providence. But further, thirdly, God commends a pilgrim spirit regarding wealth. The point is not to accumulate and get and compete in such a way that harms, but we're to, com- we're to live life with a pilgrim spirit regarding wealth. Leviticus 25 teaches us that the Bible continues, what the Bible will continue to stress, that everything that we come to possess and accumulate on this planet is on temporary loan from our Creator. Everything I possess and accumulate is on temporary loan from my Creator. It all belongs to Him. And we won't hold it in our hands for very long at all. It's foolish to make an idol out of that. We are strangers. We are sojourners on assignment to steward God's gifts for a short time. God is not impressed or honored by how much I consume. He is honored by faithful stewardship of what providence places in my hands for a time. My final accounting then is not before a tax lawyer or an estate attorney or anything of the sort, not even before the family that hopefully inherits my wealth. And that's appropriate where we stand. My final accounting is before God. And I should prepare hard 
for that meeting. I placed this in your hands. What did you do with it? How did you steward it? How did you care for it? Did you live like a pilgrim whose home is elsewhere? Or did you live as if this world is my home? Number four, God commends faithful, compassionate investment for the good of others. This we need to know about our Father. Faithful, compassionate investment for the good of others. That's why He puts wealth in our hands. And in a free society, how free we are to do good to others. The freedom to accumulate wealth is no invitation to exploit the poor. Leviticus 25 teaches us that God gives wealth in order to do good to others. This week, I read in the newspaper, movie star reported in the media as spending on average $2 million a month. $2 million month after month after month. That'd be tiring. Let me say, two million a month in spending, that is not living. That is an empty soul that has been sucked into the vortex of a brutal God's power, and he's being destroyed by his wealth. We are given wealth as a stewardship from God to enjoy. But high on that list is to be the joy of acting as God's agent in this world to bless people. It is when we realize the good we can do with money that we begin to enjoy wealth in a way that invigorates and purifies the soul. As a father of young children... Each of our kids got initiated by dad into going to watch a basketball game. I never pressured them to play, but I kind of said, don't you think this looks good? Isn't this a good idea? Isn't this a fun thing? Now, what if one of my young kids had said, that looks terrible. Those guys are all, their, their faces are all flush and they're sweating and they're tired. And this person over here is getting yelled at by a coach. And this, this person, they're suffering. Why would I want to do that? What would I say? Oh, you don't understand. They're having the time of their life. They are having so much fun. It's painful. It's suffering. But it's good. Apply that to money. Giving to others, pouring out wealth for the cause of Christ. It's sweaty. It hurts. You can't get things done. You watch other people who make less than you do things with it that you wish you could do and you don't do it. That's the pain of it, the suffering of it. But is it ever fun? It's a joy. And it's when we begin to use wealth that way that we realize God has given us this gift to put it into play for the cause of Christ and for the good of people, which is the cause of Christ. It's a joyful enterprise. 
So we make no apologies as a church to say, give to the work of the Lord. And when the offering plate comes or when a commitment is made, we force no one, we twist no arms. But if you don't know the joy of laying down your wealth in a way that forces you to trust God and in a way that passes up some of the beauties of this world for the greater beauties of the world to come, you don't know how to deal with money. We just want you to get there. Because we know the joy of giving. Using money to help people out of trouble pleases the Lord. Now there's a difference between compassion and enabling lazy people. The poor under the old covenant worked for the money that they received. They went out into the field and collected the crops. They labored in servanthood to pay off their debts. There's a difference between kindness with money and perpetuating habits that enslave the poor to the rich by giving them wealth without teaching them how to earn it, to save it, and to give it themselves. If we're not teaching those to whom we give to learn the joy of giving, and we're not helping them get to the place where they can do that, are we really helping them, or are we just salving our own conscience for the moment? The key to it all is Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I don't want someone controlling me by giving what I cannot produce and not helping me find a way to be able to produce it. There's a lot of questions we must ask. Let me say just finally and very briefly, God commends liberation. The reason he commends liberation, which we see here in the year of Jubilee, is that he wrote the book on it. He loves to free captives. The day of atonement, the ram's horn is sounded and Jubilee begins. It points to the future. It points to what is yet to come. As we read from Isaiah 61 and 42 today, prophetic references to Christ who said in Luke 4, He... The Father has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God is a master redeemer of those who are poor in spirit. And He liberates them. That's the point of it all. He's a liberator. Is that you? Are you poor in spirit? We're not the deserving poor in this case. When it comes to our spiritual poverty, what we deserve is hell. But through that atonement, the trumpet sounds and Christ in His mercy saves His people, redeems them from their sin and from their depravity. The day of atonement points to the millennial freedom from the curse and ultimately to a renewed earth where there will be no more toil and it will abundantly produce. The messianic age will usher in spiritual liberty for the oppressed. Liberty Jesus inaugurated at His first coming and will fulfill at His second coming. Have you been liberated by Christ? God is speaking this to you here. I'm a liberator. I will deliver you from sin. I will rescue you from yourself and your spiritual poverty. Come to Christ, trusting His death and His resurrection. In that atonement, there is liberty, which we can proclaim throughout the land and throughout the nations of this world.